Once again, welcome. We are very glad you're here this morning. For those of you who are visiting, we are extremely glad that you're here. Thank you for coming and being a part of us this morning and uh, uh, trusting us with your hearts uh, and your minds and your time this morning, and I hope it is a a worthy experience for you. Um, We have a large group that's here that's typically not here during the summer and a rather large group that's not here that typically is. Uh, we are having our summer reunion, which means uh, on our campus ministry, we have a lot of our returning students who have come from out of town and come to join us for the weekend, along with uh, a, a good handful of our new students who will be coming our way this fall. And we're very glad all of you are here. And just so you know, we know right now about 150 new students that uh, at least we're in contact with on a serious level and, and uh, know that are coming our way as freshmen and transfers this fall and uh, uh, so things have already begun on that end. Uh, in terms of the group that's, le- that's gone this morning, um, you might remember that we, our teen group, along with a few of our college students and some of our residents, were to go and do uh, mission work in Honduras. And uh, uh, because of the uh, political unrest there, uh, that uh, had to be canceled. And in fact, some of our own students uh, 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 were also in Honduras at the time, and uh, I had to, you know, fortunately, we were able to, to get out uh, and uh, to move, uh, come back to the United States and to, to safer uh, territory. Uh, but as a, uh, a secondary option, our teens and group have, are also doing something extremely important. They're now down in uh, Mississippi, and they're working with those who are uh, still recovering uh, from uh, uh, the, the disaster of Katrina. And so we want to remember them and pray for them, and we're thankful for what they're doing. I was told, for what it's worth, uh, before we started this morning, that the air conditioner is not working on this side. And um, I was thinking they were telling me that so that I would maybe preach a shorter period of time. My suggestion is that you just move to this side of the room. Um, I uh, do not plan to keep you very long. I hope I can have your attention for about 28, 29 minutes. Um, I do have some preaching points, but because of the nature of this text, uh, perhaps I will teach a little bit more, and, uh, and I invite your attention. If it helps you to pay attention to fill in the outline that you got coming in, please feel free to do so. And uh, here we go. I think I've told you this story before about a man who was driving outside of Memphis in the rural area, and he was out there in the country, and he looked over, and he saw these two, these, these, these group of boys that were being attacked by wild dogs. And so he jumped out of his car, and he ran over to them, and he began to, to throw the dogs off, had to kill one of them, chase the rest of them away, and save those boys. Now, it just so happened that at that moment, an editor from a local country newspaper was driving by, and he witnessed the whole thing. And so he jumps out of his pickup truck, and he runs up to the guy and says, Man, you're a hero. In fact, tomorrow the headlines are going to read, Memphis man saves boys from wild dogs. And the guy said, Well, uh, be truthful, I'm, I'm not from Memphis. He goes, That's okay. The headlines are going to read, Tennessee man saves boys from wild dogs. And the guy said, well, to be honest with you, I'm not from uh, Tennessee either. I'm, I'm from uh, Boston, Mass. So the next day, 
Headlines read, Yankee kills family pets. We all know that prejudice, discrimination can be found in every walk of life. And now James is going to face us with this problem as it enters into church. And as we've come to expect from James, you know, he is kind of blunt, isn't he? And he's not being insensitive, and he's not being harsh, but we know that James is just not concerned with political correctness. He is concerned that Christians are genuine. And you see, if we want to call ourselves Christians, in James' mind, then our lives need to display the effects of what we say we believe. And so there, in the top of your outline, right there, mere profession of faith isn't enough to claim membership. Faith is about the transformation of the inner life. And that inner life, you see, has got to make its way and be taken to the streets, as we've been saying out of this series on James. Of course, the irony here is not only is it out there in the streets, but the problem is inside the confines of the building, if you will, metaphorically. And if that's the case, then Christianity is suspect, isn't it? Well, listen to James. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Listen carefully. My brothers, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, says, here, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, stand over there, or come over here and sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Is it not the rich, the ones who are dragging you into court? Isn't the rich the ones who are slandering the noble name of the one to whom we belong? No. It's easy enough to connect the dots between, you know, uh, 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 the pews and poverty and prejudice. But I want to kind of fill in the gap because... There are some unique things that took place in James's day in the culture that he lived in. As you look at the Roman Empire, and there also in the confines in the microcosm of, of, of uh, Palestine. So let me just make it just a few points just to kind of accentuate this. First of all, in the Roman Empire, let me kind of talk about this social structure and pyramid as we talk. Only about 8% actually had wealth. And you might add an additional 2% 
that were considered to be those who were able to gain wealth, leaving a massive 90% who actually lived at or below what we would call the poverty line. Now think about that for just a few moments. As you can see, the, the, the social economic pyramid was very steep and then fans out at the bottom. In other words, there was virtually no middle class. And social climbing was virtually impossible. It was a very rigid social structure, and they were to know where they belonged. Second, because all but the wealthy made their clothes at home, one of the clear social markers that distinguished the rich from the poor was what? What they wore. It was very obvious, thus James's comments. Thirdly, unlike our culture, and by the way, the issue of clothing is rather ambivalent in our culture, isn't it? Unlike our culture, wealth did not guarantee status. In that day, if you wanted to be recognized, which was very competitive, by the way, because there was only a few positions of status in that culture, and there was this, like today, an insatiable desire for power and recognition. So how did you get it? You had to pay for it. If you were willing to, to, to spend your money uh, uh, in that particular city you lived in or in that particular town for the, you know, for the buildings and put your plaque on there and the roads and that kind of thing or pay for political campaigns, if you did that, then extravagant public displays of flattery were just lavished on you. But again, it was extremely competitive. And even in Judaism, it was customary at the synagogues Next slide, there we go. To give the seats of honor to those who, in a way, deserved it. And by the way, the seats of honors were those who sat closest to the sacred scrolls, just so you know. Now, I guess at first it began innocently enough as simply a, a show of respect for those who were leaders. But it did not take long to move from that point to literally becoming a system uh, that played out the same social structure of status and power. The closer you sat to the, to the scrolls, the bigger you were in the kingdom of God. And so, as you can see, it was this kind of prevailing social norm that made its way into the church. And what was happening in the church is that some of these Christians apparently were just blissfully unaware of this. And others might have seen it, seen the problem, but they were thinking to themselves, this is no big deal. After all, this is just the way it is. Isn't this how we were raised? But James thinks there's more to this than first meets the eye in this structure that they say of honor and shame. Very few had honor. Most everyone sat in the positions of shame. So there... And what James has to say, it's very simple and straightforward. You could probably stop the sermon here, and I'm not going to, because I want you to hear the rest of what he has to say. But notice on, the, on your outlines, spirituality and partiality are irreconcilable. Now, he's going to play that out. Now, what does James mean when he uses the word favoritism? I mean, after all, let's be honest, it sounds rather non-threatening, doesn't it? Favoritism. Somewhat innocuous. Well, 
there's a lot of ways you, we can define that, but let me just put it in what I hope is good street language. It is the sin of judging differences in others that make no difference to God. It is the sin of judging differences in others that make no difference to God. Now, of course, there are all sorts of social markers that we use even today, and you can list them too, can't you? Race, gender, age, education, education, economic and social status. Now, understand that James doesn't criticize, you notice, he doesn't criticize the wealthy visitor for being rich. What he does is scold the church for showing preferential treatment to the rich because he was rich. And James uses very strong language here when he says, when you show this kind of favoritism, you judge, he says, with evil thoughts. So no matter what you call it, favoritism, discrimination, bigotry, prejudice, Partiality, it's evil because it does not reflect the very heart of God. You see, this word favoritism is used throughout the New Testament. And in all occasions but this one example in James, it is used to describe God himself. That is, we're told over and over again, whether it's in the context of a master to a slave or to a Jew in relationship to a a Gentile, we're told that God himself does not show favoritism. So you see, in the first century, interestingly enough, the church was absolutely the only place you could go where distinctions of age and race and, and gender did not determine the value of a person. Think about that. In fact, it was the only social setting where you could actually find the master sitting right next to his slave, and they were equals. In fact, the slave might even be the spiritual leader of the master with whom he sat with. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Notice, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. What do you like when Jesus is part of the fabric of your life? Notice the the radical, clear, profound implications. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Fill in your own blanks. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, from the very moment you connect your life with Jesus, you are called to commit yourself to a radical equality. Now, the question is, why is it so important for the church to reflect this radical equality? And that's where we're going to go, and that's where James wants to kind of play out for us, to, to capture our minds and our hearts with this. So first of all, in your, on your outlines, because Jesus died for the poor. 
Now, it shouldn't be hard to see with a little bit we've talked about so far that in a social structure like they lived in, and like we live in, but especially back then, uh, Jesus' message gave great hope to the poor. It offered a world that offered them little of anything they had great attractions to when they heard the message of Jesus. But when the church shows this kind of favoritism, it inverts that hope, doesn't it? And it gives people the wrong idea about Jesus. We've got to remember that Jesus' whole mission was to bind all of us to God and to each other. To put it bluntly on your outlines, favoritism denies the cross. Now listen to this as Paul faces what was the clearest example of racism in the first century. I'll read this out of the message. Ephesians 2. The message was, the the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. Instead, of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion. He created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders He treated us as equals, and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Now, in that context, in this language in the first century, do you understand what James is trying to say to us? E. Stanley Jones He is a well-known missionary to India, um, had a profound impact in the early to mid-1900s. And he tells, uh, as he was there doing mission work in India, he tells about how on one occasion uh, a a Brahmin, that's the person who uh, uh, possesses the high status in the caste structure of of the Indian Hindu culture, was there at this evangelistic meeting, and all the Christians were, were sharing these, these glowing testimonies of, about how Jesus had saved their lives. And in the process of this, during this meeting, this Brahmin felt compelled to stand up, and he said this. He goes, you people say that you are saved. Well, so am I. Just as you say Jesus has saved you, Krishna has saved me. And at that, the missionary apparently replied. He says, I am so glad to hear and to know that you are saved. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're all going to go uh, down to the outcast quarters. Uh, I think they call them the untouchables in that caste system, the Dalits. And we're going to see those poor people, and we're going to see what we can do to help them, and we're going to sit in their houses, and we're going to share our lives with them and try to help them. Will you join us? And we're told that the Brahmin kind of paused for a few moments, looked down, and then he looked up and says, well, 
I am saved. But I am not saved that far. Do you hear the question that James is asking? The hard one. How far are you really saved? Because with everyone who walks through these doors metaphorically and into the the door of your life, metaphorically, we know one of two things about them. One, if if in that person... If that person is a person of faith in Jesus, then Jesus lives in that person. And if not, then Jesus died for that person. So either way, we're supposed to love them, aren't we? Now, you should be able to pick up and read in the Gospels that Jesus was very socially conscious. And on one occasion, Jesus noticed how people jostled for positions of honor at social events like weddings. And so he made this observation in Luke 14. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say, friend, move to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Later, Jesus would warn us of the dangers of misreading outward appearance in Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Put them together. The point is, That favoritism isn't just a matter of mistreating people or breaking through some social standards of conduct that we should maintain. But it is, in fact, treating Jesus himself as though he were of little value. Think about this and what Jesus just said. As we gather for worship, we ought to be conscious that Jesus, too, is present in our midst. And can't we assume can't we assume that Jesus takes his own advice? That is that when Jesus meets with us he does not sit in the seat of honor jostling for our attention. But rather Jesus actually takes the place of humility amongst us waiting to be identified and recognized as Lord. And so when we neglect and ignore the poor in our midst, we also neglect and ignore Jesus himself. I'll let you work on that one. I'm still working on it. Number two on your outlines, because Jesus died for the wealthy. That is, we're all saved by grace. We know this. And so we must understand that we have an obligation to reveal that to the world. But the world, you see, operates by a a fundamentally converse kind of principle. That is, that the undeserving are exactly that, undeserving. Of course, there's kind of an assumption here, isn't there? If you stop and think about it. 
that is, the rich are rich, and the poor are poor, because they deserve it. Well, you know, I guess wealth can be obtained through good things like discipline and hard work and responsibility. That's true. So there's a character issue involved there. But where did we learn that accumulating wealth or that not having it and being in poverty are always to be attributed to issues of character? That rich man may be rich simply because he inherited it. It has nothing to do with character. So, on your outlines, when we judge people by the same standards that the world judges people by, we have abandoned our responsibility to be heralds of God's grace. I guess we have to decide where we're going to find our status here. In the props or the substance of the blood of Jesus. And they're irreconcilable. And yet we all struggle with that, don't we? James tells us point blank that one of the ways we can impress God's grace upon the world is by the way we treat the poor. And then James asks a rhetorical question. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor? Now, James is simply making an observation here, and he expects you and me to agree with him. God doesn't simply settle for the poor. God chooses the poor. Now, James isn't suggesting that the poor are automatically going to heaven and the rich are automatically going to hell. He does not say that. Because, after all, while the rich may struggle with pride and self-reliance, you struggle with that? The poor can also struggle with perhaps clinging to, clinging to victimization and bitterness. We all have our baggage, right? But what James is saying is that being poor in spirit, which is absolutely fundamental to defining our relationship with God, most often germinates, finds its roots in those who are poor in material wealth. Because the poor are more aware of their powerlessness, and so they're much more open to acknowledging their need for Jesus. This is a great text. When Paul talks to Corinthians and he reminds them of something, notice in 1 Corinthians 1, Brothers, listen, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Think of the pyramid. And by the way, it's estimated, I've heard estimations of two-thirds of the first century church was made up of those who were slaves. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of this world to shame that which is strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world. By the way, a little caveat, um, I think it was Cicero, although I'm not, 
But a person who was making a railing judgment against the church, he compared you and me, being believers in Jesus, as being like a group of worms wallowing around in the mud. And his point was, man, that group of people will accept anybody into their midst. And, of course, what was the railing judgment was really the church's glory, if you're hearing this. He chose the things which are not to nullify the things that are. Now, here's the reason why God chooses the poor, so that no one will boast before him. God chooses the poor because they don't boast. Now, again, God is not biased against those who are wealthy. And so the Christian answer is not reverse discrimination. Because whether we have plenty or we have poverty, God is passionate about every single person. But what we're reminded of here in this text is that most of us here are going to be saved by the letter M. Because, I guess, by global standards, all of us are wealthy. And you may ask, how is it that we are going to be saved by the letter M? Well, God didn't say God didn't call any who were wealthy. He said he just didn't call many that were wealthy. So the letter M is going to save most, if not all, of us. And then he adds a parenthetical. James asks a series of questions. And in essence, he says, by the way, stop and think about this for a moment. Think of what your social experience is. Who, after all, is giving us Christians all this trouble anyway? It's not the poor who are legally persecuting you. It's not the poor who are hassling you. In a way, you can look at our world. You know, you don't have to go too far. It's not the poor who are trying to kick God out of our culture. And I don't want to trivialize this, but, you know, those little vestiges like, uh, uh, you know, kicking out the nativity scenes and, and Ten Commandments out of public spaces. By the way, we Christians can survive that if that's what happens. Um, uh, it's, you know, removing the word God from our coins or removing God from our pledge. I'd rather keep it in there because it's true. But you know something? The ones that are promoting that are not the poor. It's the, it's the, the social elite that are championing those causes. Well, it's the poor who are more likely to embrace God because they know they need God. And so the twisted irony that faces all of us here is why we are aping, mimicking, remember back that's what they were, what they were doing in that church, mimicking our culture in favor of the rich. Why do that when they're the very class of people who seek to do the church harm? And if you struggle with that, you've got to take it up with God. Number three, and finally, because Jesus died to invoke the royal law. 
Now listen to the remainder of our text, picking up in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law, by the way, it's royal because it reigns over all the others. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, prejudice, discrimination, bigotry, you sin and are convicted by the law as a law breaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Do you see where he's going with this? For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, we are all vulnerable to thinking that the issues of bigotry and prejudice and the things that spawns like hate language and oppression, that it's just no big deal. And we end up kind of trivializing what God wants from us. And so James reminds us that God sees our responses holistically. That is, on your outlines, when, you know, when we don't love all the poor, rich and poor alike, we invalidate all our attempts at following God's standards. Now, James isn't trying to create a pecking order of lesser sins and greater sins. That's not his point. But he is trying to point out the overall effect that any sin has to our relationship with reflecting the heart of God. Let me illustrate it this way. It would be like someone throwing a rock through a pane of glass. And when that glass shattered, you wouldn't say, well, you know, he broke part of the window, you know, where the rock hit. No, the person would say, he broke the window, right? In other words, you don't break God's law a little bit. Specifically here, James is telling us that love is total. And so we as Christians can't go around kind of selectively choosing who we consider to be our neighbor. We're to treat all people, rich and poor, as we would want to be treated ourselves. Like the Apostle Paul says, the entire law is summed up in this one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, yes, again, it is a big deal. And then James ends by saying, but mercy triumphs over judgment. How we welcome others evidences the kind of welcome we can expect from God. Now, James isn't suggesting here uh, that acting out of mercy kind of obligates God because mercy has kind of a purchasing power for redemption. That's not what he's saying. But what James is saying is that mercy demonstrates that we get it. 
that we actually understand and affirm what Jesus has actually done for us. After all, Jesus wasn't selective about whose sins he was going to pay for when he went to the cross, did he? The world is looking for evidence that God is merciful. But how can we give evidence that our hearts are literally the miracle work of God's grace when we will not extend that to others, the same kind of acceptance that we ourselves do not deserve, but yet we ask from God? So, it is this relationship that vindicates us, and it's this kind of love that actually will get the world's attention. My time is up. Thank you for coming. We want to offer an invitation to you. If we can serve you in any way this morning as a, as a, a family of God, uh, we want you to feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.